Hello and welcome to episode four of Back to Britpop. On this episode, I'm speaking to Matthew Priest from Dodgy. Dodgy originated from Hounslow in 1990. Uh, they released their first album, the Dodgy album, in 1993. And most recently, uh, released an album called What Are We Fighting For in 2017. The boys continue to play live and next year sees the 25-year anniversary of Free Piece Suite, which was released in 1996. Matt talks about how the band courted record labels, publishers, their club scene, and we talk about the ever-changing face of the music industry. It was an absolutely fantastic chat, and I hope you really enjoy it. I'll be back at the end to talk about social media and all that sort of thing. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew Priest. How are you? Yeah. Good, Chris. Good. Sunshining. All, all good here. How have you been coping with this, this sort of bizarre situation we've been in for the last four or five months? It's been awful that I haven't been able to see the boys from the band, and it's been awful that I haven't been able to play and yeah. get out and play and, uh, and play gigs, because we've, we've been doing that a lot. That's been horrible. But fortunately, uh, I also teach. I, I teach kids with emotional and behavioural difficulties. Um, in a school, I teach them maths and music. That's kind of what I do during the week. And uh, vulnerable kids uh, have had to be taught uh, during during the whole lockdown. Um, yeah. So I, I haven't stopped, and that, that's been really good for me because it's kept the money coming in and uh, yeah. it's kept me busy. So I haven't um, I haven't had to sit there going mad. Um, twiddling my thumbs wondering when the next bit of money's coming in or when the uh, next gig's going to be um, so it's been okay for me it, it, it's been okay I've, uh, I've, I've got through it uh, there's, there's a joke I, I've told quite a few times now um, uh, and I'm going to keep telling it until people, someone comes along and punches me in the face but it's about the reason why I work with kids with emotional behaviour difficulties is because I've been around musicians for 30 years and uh, <laughs> It's given me a unique set of skills, you know. So uh, that's that. That's why I do what I do. It, it's good. It's rewarding, and uh, yeah. and thank God I am doing that at the moment. People would be more familiar with Dodgy around the sort of nineties and mid nineties and the Britpop area, but it started a lot earlier than that for you guys, didn't it? Really? Well, we got signed. I think it was ninety or ninety one. Yeah, when when it was still very baggy. Yeah, um, or, or Grebo, even. Do you remember that one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonder stuff and uh, net atomic dustbin. And, um, yeah, so so it was around that time, but certainly before Britpop had taken off, um, and it was certainly around the the rave kind of indie dance kind of thing. A lot of crossover was happening. Stone Roses, EMF, that kind of thing, and. Uh, we sort of came out of that really sort of hedonistic parties and a lot of stuff like that going on and we kind of rode the Britpop wave really I mean we I said to my friend the other day is that whenever there's a retrospective of Britpop and we're not included I'm happy about that because I never felt part of it but I'm also a bit sad about it yeah, because yeah. You know, we were quite an important part of that era. But um, but Britpop is certainly not something we we ever talked about or considered or, or 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 ever wrote towards or thought that we were part of. Well, there was certainly a great amount of bands and fantastic bands and a huge amount of energy, loads of money around, um, lots of hedonism, lots of fun. And we certainly wrote that, you know, 
something like that. But but yeah, but we we released our first album sort of just before it all started to kick off, really. Were you always a three-piece, or did you kind of have sort of a different arc- incarnation at the very beginning? Well, we started as a three-piece, and then we, we, we always added extra instruments anyway. Yeah. And I think on the first, uh, the first album tour, we, um, we took a keyboard player out with us anyway. So um, I think that was just to, just to augment the sound. Who are um, your influences then? Who do who you well, into at the very early stages? Well, it, I, I always like to think it was kind of like coming from three different places. We had Nigel, who was the, who was the punk um, and he brought a lot of those influences, like the Clash and Crass and the Sex Pistols and the Ruts and, and stuff like that. Uh, Andy Miller was like the, the, the hippie rocker and he had Floyd and Zeppelin, uh, Genesis, that kind of stuff. And I was more the mod where I never used to dress like one. <laughs> but it was certainly that kind of music with a lot of soul music, um, Slana Family Stone. Marvin Gaye, stuff like that. So we, so we, the, the, the sort of the rock of the punk and the soul boy, and then we'd meet in the middle um, with bands that we all love together, like Jimi Hendrix and the Who and the Beatles and the Stones um, and the Doors. So we, we it was we put we'd pull from everywhere, you know, and we and we'd start to teach each other about our, our, the music that we loved, and we sort of throw it in the pot together, and we discovered a lot of stuff together. We discovered we discovered the Beach Boys together, you know. We discovered yeah. country we discovered country music together, and and of course there was a lot of stuff coming through at the time, a lot of hip hop, a lot of dance music that we were discovering together as well. But yeah, it was, we're certainly from a very broad base. I mean, we used to love, I suppose, three real obvious, maybe, influences were, um, were The Who, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and, and Solana Family Stone. That, that, was, that was the sort of triumvirate, if you know. That, 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 was, that was where we used to take a lot of our influences from. And, you know, we used to love, well, not all three of us used to love uh and Nash and Neil Young. So were those those early kind of um sessions then as a three pace when you were sort of trying or discovering your sound, was there a, like a moment when you kind of thought, ah, this is this is our this is dodgy, this is kind of the combination or the melting pot of all those tastes. Was there like a moment when you kind of discovered your sound? I think um one bit I do remember is I've been to a rave uh, in Canvey Island. And I think Nigel had been up all night, and uh, and we sort of we, we built a we built a rehearsal room in our garage, and um, me and Nigel went into the rehearsal room, um, still still experiencing the joys of the of the previous evening, and <laughs> uh, uh, and we we sort of jammed for hours, and uh, and I remember we wrote a song called Lovebirds, or not, Lovebirds came out of that little jammy session that me and Nigel were doing, and that was the time when we thought, oh, hang on. We're getting somewhere here, which was a little bit persistent. There was a there was a little bit of a dance thing going on, just a bit of a droney thing, mm. um, just sort of persistent beats mixed with the melodies, big melodies, big chords, and the who and and um, and I remember at the time thinking, um, you know, we, we were certainly onto something. And then um, and then the Stone Roses came out, and I thought, bastards! This is obviously back <laughs> in nineteen eighty nine before Andy had joined the band, the guitarist. And um, oh, bastards, they're, they're doing, what, <laughs> doing what, we were, what we're on. We're on that trip as well. We're on the, the Jimi Hendrix, James Brown, 
Sly Stone, Marvin Gaye, Beatles, you know, Pink Floyd. We were on that trip as well, you know. Mm. Um, and we heard them and we heard Made of Stone. And I remember thinking, yeah, yeah, bastards, well done. But it was great because the Stone Roses were, certainly with me, I love the Stone Roses, you know, that they, they kind of confirmed that we were on the right path, you know. So with, with um, A&M, when you signed to them in, in 93, how was that instigated? Did you have to do like a, like a show? Were you invited there to play or did they, or, or what was the situation with, with the signing process? I got there. We were actually, <laughs> we actually signed to, to A&M back in 1991, but back then, signing to a major record company was, was not seen as cool at all. Uh, even though, you know, um, Blur and Oasis, signed to a, to a major via the indie, you know, Blur mm. were essentially on EMI via Food Records and Oasis were on Sony, essentially via Creation. But, but signing directly to a major would almost seem like, oh no, you're not cool, you're selling out straight away. You've got to, you, at the time, you had to have some indie credentials. So we signed to A&M, but we said to them, leave us alone for a year, let us release three, three singles on our own label let us make mistakes. So they gave us a load of money. Well, not a load of money. I not a load compared to nowadays, but yeah. gave us some money, enough money for us to release three singles on our own label, Boston Records, and to do some experimenting and, and to go on tour and to see how it all worked out. And then the whole idea was is that they um, then took us on for the, for, the, for the album. And they said, no, you can, you can piss about for three singles, but then we're getting you for the album. You're going to do the album for us. But, but yeah, I mean, we were courted. We're, we were courted quite a bit. It's quite it's hysterically. It's um, the, the guy that came down, um, we, we had our own club called the Dodger Club in Kingston um, because at the time as well, uh, there was a thing called pay to play, which is if you wanted to play at a venue such as the Lady Owen Arms in Farringdon in London, which was a shithole of a venue. Sorry, I'm, I'm swearing here, Chris, and I didn't ask if it was okay. For no, me. it's absolutely fine. It's yeah, absolutely fine. It's a shithole of a venue. And, um, and we didn't know anyone in London, really, you know, because we were from Birmingham, we and Nigel, we didn't really know anyone. But the, the only way you could make any money from gigs is that they would give you a load of printed tickets, because, of course, this was pre-internet or pre-mobile phones or anything. They would give you a load of printed tickets, and then there you go, sell those for whatever you want, and you take that money. So they wouldn't actually pay you any money to, to, to do the gig. Um, and we thought that was a bit of a rip-off, you know, because how on earth were we going to afford to pay, uh, afford to play there? So we thought we'd do what our heroes did, and we set up our own residence. Um, you know, like the Who did um, at the Marquee, or the Stones did at Eel Pie, or whatever. Um, and we set up our own residency at a club called Bacchus Wine Bar in Kingston. And we did that every couple of weeks on a Thursday. And because King, and we chose Kingston specifically because it had loads of colleges and universities and polytechnics there. Uh, and we'd just go and fly post around there. And it was pretty much sold out from the first date we did. Because we didn't advertise it as dodgy play. We advertised it as the club. So we advertised all the bands that we were playing, made it look kind of cool. Straight away, tapped into that kind of audience, cool, slightly hedonistic, slightly hippie, slightly arsenic tentacles, that kind of audience who came down and, and loved it. Um, and people from those days, from 1990, the Dodger Club is still in contact with us, you know. Some people are on Facebook. And what we said to record companies, is if you want to come and see the band, you've got to come to Kingston. Um, yeah, yeah. Kingston and uh, watch us at our own club 
and um, we wouldn't have a guest list and they'd have to pay double on the door. Because um, <laughs> it was about having just a bit of an attitude. As if we had a similar story when we, um, when we had our publishing. Um, we, didn't, we asked for a certain amount of money and Virgin and BMG both said, yeah, we'll give you that amount of money. And we didn't want any more because we knew we'd have to pay it back. It was all advances. So we got the head of BMG and the head of Virgin to play each other at Italian 90 football. In, in the pub, in our local <laughs> pub. And whoever won was going to get our publishing. But as it turned out, it was a bit like Solomon's Wisdom, that um, the guy that did win from Virgin, who's now head of Universal, I think, <laughs> he's a big, massive, big wig guy, he won and he went, great guys, and sped off in his sport car, sports car, and the guy from BMG sort of stayed behind and went, that was amazing. This is why I want to sign you, band, you guys. And I'm prepared to just have one of your bits of publishing just because I love him. We thought, oh, we really like him. You know, so we said, yeah, we'll sign with him then. <laughs> and the from Virgin was like, but I won the football. And we're like, yeah, that's not really legally binding, mate. So, yeah, so we didn't really make friends with him. You can't really see that happening nowadays. It's such a well-oiled machine, isn't it? The money is, is uh, so, I guess, tight and everything's drilled down so far in terms of expenditure, I think. And, and those kind of homegrown type of, of way of dealing with things, you know, signing on the back of a cigarette packet or, or whatever, it's just something that's really stayed in the past, it feels to me. Well, we were, we're coming out the back of indie, and indie was a real, you know, I mean, indie just means something completely different now to what it used to mean. I mean, indie was, throughout the 80s, uh, indie meant bands that, that you all know you, you you shouldn't become you shouldn't want to be successful you know you had bands like the uh, the corn dollies or um you know uh, just so many bands that were that were fay and twangy and you know with the, with the guitars and the chiming guitars and enemy and melody maker and sounds and and it was indie and it stayed indie uh, and it wasn't going to be successful, the weather profits and blah, blah, blah. Even though a lot of these artists obviously really did want to be successful, though you couldn't, you couldn't really express that desire that you wanted to be successful, that you wanted to be commercially successful and get into the charts, because that was almost the enemy. Mm. Uh, so the indie was very, very DIY. It was, it, you know, it, it come off the back of punk and post-punk and all these great labels that, has, that had sprung up at the back of punk from Fast Product in, in, in Edinburgh through Creation and Postcard Records and Food Records and blah, blah, blah. So many great little indie labels and rough trade, of course. You're, you're doing this music for, for the right reasons. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you, and then I think bands like, the Stone Roses came along and just changed that. They, they, they were like, no, 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 we want to be massive. You know, we want to be good. They, they came out of the indie scene, but with a, with a real, you know, I want to be adored, you know, with that, with that attitude, which, which was fresh, you know, and I, and I think that attitude more than anything um, really inspired the, what happened in the 90s, what came in the 90s, where bands were like, yeah, you know what, it's okay to want to be successful. Do you think that um, not, maybe not as exciting for bands nowadays? Then, obviously, especially, I mean, we're recording in sort of the coming out of lockdown and COVID has made a massive impact on live music and just that whole scene of gigging essentially and, and building your your brand on the road and and you know in your hometown and stuff. But there's an element I think that that raw grittiness of the music industry that will be gone 
forever. It just feels less um, personable to me. I don't, know what, I don't know what you think. Uh, I know. I know what you're saying. And it's very, very dangerous to, to, to go down those routes and say, oh, it's not like it was. Mm. Uh, because cause I'm not 15. And, and, I'm yeah. not, and I'm not getting into music for the first time. Um, you know, uh, I'm certainly not 15. I'm quite a bit older than 15 now. And so for me, the way I got into music and the way we discovered bands, it was pretty simple. You know, you had the radio, you know, you had the record shop and you had the music press mm. and you had word of mouth and fanzines, mm. you know, but essentially you had press, you had radio, you had gigs, you know, but it was really, really simple. That's where you go. You, you, your mates have told you about a gig. Oh yeah, I've read about them in the Melody Maker. I've read about them in me. I'll try and go and see them there or I'll go and buy the record at the record shop. It was pretty simple. Nowadays, there's a whole myriad of ways that bands can become, they, be, they try to get themselves known. You know, they're, they're, there are bands that, that, that are selling out, well, certainly were before COVID, they were selling out venues I'd never heard of that they were never getting any radio play whatsoever. I mean, don't get, get me started on YouTubers and how successful they are, but oh, it's yeah. essentially that kind of thing. It's like bands were bands are getting like you know, certain artists or bands are getting like 100, 200,000 plays on Spotify just via online fanzines and just via sort of word of mouth and and instagram and and bits and bob and and the old traditional ways um you know are, are, of the music press and the radio have kind of been bypassed so in a way it's great that there are so many more ways that bands can get themselves out there but it's just it's it's very confusing it's a myriad it's it's byzantine just what where's this band come from who are they yeah you know, I mean, it's like on Facebook now, I get, I get adverts through from, from, from bands going, listen to this new band who've got this pop rock feel. Why are you advertising to me? And this is shit. You know, what's going on here? Um, and, and in a way, yeah, I do hop back to, the, to a, a day when it was a bit simpler of, right, you could read about them in the Melody Maker or the Enemy. Uh, you, could, you could go to your local record shop and, and get some advice there. You could see them at your local venue um, or you could hear them on the radio, you know, and, and that's the, those are the places you'd aim for. You'd aim to get in the Enemy. You'd aim to get um, the support slot for a band, a bigger band coming round. You'd aim to get on the radio, you know, and I suppose those are the things that still matter now if you can get on the radio, but the internet has just changed everything. Was there a moment when you felt that there was a release that thought, yes, this is this is us? Was there like a festival booking or something that came together in, the, in, in like some sort of uh, moment? I suppose every time I went to the studio, we felt, yeah, this is great. Um, but you can look back on it and go, it wasn't great. Like the first single was a double E side. Hmm, wonder what we're doing there. <laughs> the double E side. Uh, and we're at the time, we think, this is great. One side, Summer Fair, which is kind of Beatles-y type thing. And the beast, the other side was kind of this groove thing that was going on. And that's where we are at the time, sort of Beatles groove type thing. And then we did another two singles by ourselves and each one was very, very different. And each one we thought, yeah, this is great. We're learning more and whatever. And yeah, this is definitive of what we want. And then we did the first album uh, and we did it with Ian Brody. And again, we thought, yeah, there's some real great stuff on there. But he was quite, 
sure he quite sure about what how he wanted us to sound uh, and we were not as confident in a way he was confident as his production skills as how he wanted to sound and we weren't as confident to say no we want to sound like this so uh. we were kind of led a little bit and and there were still some great moments on that first album so i think to answer your question the first time where we went you know what this really does sound like us is is the homegrown album which is the mm. second album um we stand out for the summer one uh we do with hugh, hugh jones and that's where we went yeah shit this is great um staying out for the summer melis haunt you grass man you know and we really started bringing in lots of different influences and it really felt like us it sounded like us we because we had grown in confidence you know we hadn't stopped playing um and and it's not ian brody's fault you know the reason why he probably had to um take a bit more control is because perhaps we weren't as confident to be able to play, you know, yeah, we yeah. weren't sh as sure about what we wanted. But by the time of that second album, we were a lot sure. And we certainly forged a great relationship with Hugh Jones. Um, but, but yeah, that second album, Homegrown, is when it all started to come together and our sound really started to happen. But, um, but of course, Good Enough was the track where we just went, shit. <laughs> that's that's the one you know i think anyone who heard that anyone who heard the demo or, or you know they all went yeah that's the one yeah. that's the one but yeah i mean i remember growing up and, and being in bands and uh we were in a band called Croix turn in the 90s and our sound was just replicating your guitar sound i mean shed seven's guitar sound that that, that sort of Strat or Telly, I can't yeah. remember, uh, just that real that kind of cl that clean but gritty, and it was just really the, the attack on on those kind of styles of guitaring is what I kind of lean towards. But we just made music that sounded like yours, <laughs> but with these worst lyrics over the top of them. Um, <laughs> well, the thing is, that guitar sound is you know, you can trace that back via John Squire, you know, via Johnny Moore, Johnny Marr. Back to Jimi Hendrix, you know, yeah. it's, it's he, Jimi Hendrix had a massive influence on a lot of Britpop guitar, you know, it's, uh, mm. it really was, it, it was that treacly, you know, cutting through, slightly psychedelic kind of sound, you'd hear it in Stone Roses, Shed 7, Blue Tones, hear it in there, you know, it's um, us, um, and, and it was that, you know, Jimi Hendrix was a massive influence. When Britpop kicked off, I mean, from who I've spoken to so far whilst doing this this podcast thing, is that it was a surprise to, to a lot of the bands and they didn't really see it coming. What was your what was your take on it then and kind of what's your thoughts on it now, if I can ask? Um, it depends which band you talk to because there was a kind of first wave and second wave. Yeah. Uh, there, were the, there were the bands that, that initially came out, like ourselves and Suede and um, Blur, uh, and, and a few others, originally like charlatans and stuff, who mm. were, were obviously coming off the baggy thing anyway, uh, who, who, who certainly weren't anything to do with Britpop. They weren't thinking about Britpop. But then there was the second wave of bands that were aware of Britpop, if you know mm. what I mean. And, that, and were thinking, oh, hang on, there's, there's this thing called Britpop that we can be part of, you know. Yeah. Um, whilst I think the first bands initially weren't aware of Britpop. It, uh, uh, it's the first time we ever heard of Britpop. We were doing an interview in Germany and the guy said, so what about this Britpop? And we were like, <laughs> what? what? What's Britpop? 
we didn't know about it. We didn't, we, you know, um, because it suddenly appeared on the scene with Sway, with, you know, Melody Maker and, and them calling themselves Britpop or Stuart McConey coining the phrase Britpop and suddenly out of nowhere came this Britpop, you know, and I think what a lot of people don't realise is that how, what an influence Radio 1 had on the whole Britpop phenomena. Uh, and without Radio 1, I don't think it would have happened like it did. Basically, Matthew Bannister was the new controller of Radio 1, and he'd taken over, and he wanted to get rid of the old guard. The old guard were like Simon Bates, Dave Lee Travis, um, all that kind of shite that was there at the end of the 80s, uh, turn of the 90s, that was... Um, that was Radio 1. I mean, you, you, you had 35, 40-year-olds listening to Radio 1. They got it really bad. They, 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 they had a remit, like the public service broadcasting and their remit was, you've got to appeal to 16 to 25-year-olds. But they weren't. They were appealing to people a lot older. Um, and Matthew Bannister, who was a young guy, came along and said, right, we've really got to shake up Radio 1. So he sacked a lot of the old guard uh, and brought in people like Zoe Ball, Chris Evans, uh, things like that but he also thought well hang on we need to brand this we need to brand Radio 1 with a sound bang perfect timing is when all this thrust of new bands were coming through Supergrass ourselves you know Oasis mm. Burr, um, Pulp blah 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 you know it goes on and on and on uh, and it just so happened that all these bands were bloody good you know, yeah. they were fucking good. And they were all really, they were all not ashamed of being successful. They all had a new take and they all had this big, shiny, brand positive, hedonistic sound, you know. And um, I mean, you know, even the Manics and Therapy, <coughs> they were they were sort of brought up in it as well. They, they were they were in the waves. They were surfers on the waves as well. Mm. And, and, you know, a lot of the songs... We're getting onto the Radio 1 A-list, which was amazing at the time. And, and that was why a lot of the songs were getting into the public consciousness and why a lot of those bands were becoming successful is because Radio 1 was playing them. The biggest station in the country was playing them. And that is what a lot of people forget. I mean, yeah, the music press was... Was, was quite big at the time. You know, you had lots of different monthlies. You had Select and Vox uh, and Q, uh, and they were all selling in the hundreds of thousands. You had three weeklies, Enemy, Melody Maker, Sounds, you know, that were again all selling. And, you know, and so there was a lot of um, auxiliary things to get around the music industry, around the bands, places where they could advertise their wares and people could hear them and stuff. But it was the fact that a lot of these bands were getting on Radio 1. You know, a lot of these bands were were getting A-listed. They were getting played like yeah, yeah. five times a day on Radio 1. Uh, and people forget that that is one of the re one of the main reasons why Britpop took off at the time. You look at bands in the, in the 2000s, um, you know, like Arctic Monkeys and Franz Ferdinand. And they didn't have... Uh, a name they didn't have a name to, for their sound yeah but but Arctic, and people say oh well because they didn't sound like each other well they did in a way mm -hmm. you know they sounded like an indie guitar band from from that period you know um but they didn't have a label 
but but it was similar in the same way that us us and supergrass and pulp and oasis were all shoved into the same label even though we weren't necessarily talking to each other necessarily all the time unless we weren't on tours together we weren't necessarily trying to sound like each other we weren't coming from the same area of the country you know mm. probably were taking the same drugs that may be influenced <laughs> where did you where, where do you think dodgy fitted in then in the whole Britpop thing because you weren't you weren't like you i suppose you, you just made the point that you're all so different but you were different again you weren't sort of you weren't Britpop, were you you were Something no, completely different. No, I mean, the thing is, the reason why we're lumped in is because we made commercial sounding songs that had yeah. hooks and melodies and choruses in the style of the Kinks and the Beatles and the Who, and you know what I mean? It was like mm. a lot of these bands, you could root back to the Small Faces and the Kinks, you could root them back to, to, to the 60s sound and the 70s sound. I mean, there was certainly that going on. And we sort of all shared that in a way, you know, and, and, and you know, you push it a bit further to Bowie and rock to music, and that's where you bring Pulp in. And so well, we all sort of look back, you know, it wasn't necessarily futuristic music we were making. It was all sort of tinged with a little bit of retro. But where we fitted in, we weren't blokey. And, and we weren't pretentious. And there were certain Britpop bands that had that kind of blokey, whoa, but we never had that. We're, we didn't necessarily appeal to that kind of beery bloke. You know, we, we always had quite a lot of females in the audience, not necessarily because they were lost in after us, though I could imagine they were with me. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I think it's because they felt safe. Certainly what a lot of girls and a lot of female and women now tell us it's because they felt safe in the audience yeah uh, you know uh, and they had an attachment with us with our music and they felt so so it was very always it was always a mixture and also when fame was calling and 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 you know and for us to take the next step as it were like radiohead did uh the verve or oasis did is is one of Someone would say it's a failing or one would say it's a good thing that we didn't, but we weren't necessarily that good at taking ourselves seriously. Uh, we, we, we thought it was always a bit pretentious, you know, and I suppose that's where the indie thing was, you know. Yeah. That indie thing was still in us a little bit of like, uh, you know, uh, of of not wanting to, like, not want, want for people to say, who the fuck does he think he is? You know yeah, I mean? yeah. Whilst to, to be in a band... You know, you've got to have people saying, who the fuck does he think he is? And the, and the lead singer goes, I, I know exactly who I am. Thank you very much. I'm the lead singer with this band. And so it was that kind of arrogance that we didn't really have, you know. I think um, looking, looking back there, Matthew, I think now something that, that really kind of sticks out as something that was is now refreshing, I guess. Because, yes, there was so much... Um, forced down you in terms of this lad culture at the time. I and mean, that was something, something that was going hand in hand with Britpop, the loaded magazine, the sort of, the, you know, yeah. all that sort of unsavory part of that, that era that we don't tend to talk about, but something I've explored already with uh, Mickey from Lush. Um, it was good to get a di completely different perspective on being a woman in a band uh, and being labeled as Britpop, especially what was going on at the time. And what the music press was doing to, you know, pit bands against each other, especially is what you said, really, that you weren't pretentious. You were always came across as people that were approachable and wanted, were having fun. There was never a front, was there? It was all very down to earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what we strove for, you know, and mm. we, were, we, we were 
always very hedonistic and we always love to drink and we always love to laugh. Um, and to our detriment, at certain points to our detriment is that we didn't take ourselves seriously enough. That could be a reason why it didn't go satisfactory, but we didn't even get a chance to do that because we split up. Looking back on it, you, I mean, uh, you've got probably an amazing amount of fond memories about your success. Are there, was there any negative things that were happening? Was there anything you look back on and think, crikey, that didn't go so well, or um, things didn't turn out as well as you'd hoped, or parts of the scene that weren't particularly very pleasant? Well, there was there was a real competitiveness between the bands, you know, uh, that we got, you know, we got embroiled in that a little bit, and uh, and perhaps I, if I if I had time again back there, I would have I would have been a bit more. I don't know, open to a lot of the other bands that were around at the time, um, you know. Um, I suppose we were, I mean, we toured with Shed 7 and we loved them and we played with Gene and we loved them. So I was like, okay, I suppose it's the bands that we never played with that you're always like, yeah, they were a bit shit, yeah, we're better than them, yeah. But I think that happens with anyone. I think any kind of, I think any kind of successful situation breeds bitchiness and, and competition, you know. But, but, but I suppose looking back, I, I, I would have been a bit more relaxed um, yeah. about the other groups and mine, perhaps not being as competitive, you know. What's the future of Dodgy then? I mean, what, what have you been up to? You're still playing, I guess. Is that, is that what's happening? Yeah, we were up to, up, to, up until Christmas. <laughs> we were. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's as Neil Young says, it's um, you get three years in the limelight and then the rest of it is just managing your career. And, and surviving, hanging on in there, you know, and uh, and we we we've doing really well. since we got back together in 2008. We we released two albums of, of new material, which have gone really, really well. Great reviews, and you know the crowd love them, and uh, and that's been great. Um, but you know we we can play we can play a show um, of new, you know, promoting our new album. And then we'll do a, a show um, uh, with uh, celebrating 25 years since Homegrown or something. And we get three times as many, four times as many people through the door, you know. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you'd be an idiot not to realise that that's where uh, a lot of the audience want to do. They, they want to come in, uh, and hear the band that they love, play the album that they love from 25 years ago, from 20 years ago. So we did that last year with Homegrown. Um, it was the 20th anniversary and we loved that <laughs> we loved it more than we thought we would uh, and the crowd loved it and it was just immense fun you know uh, perhaps we just got to that point in our career where we thought you know what it's cool to do that you know it's okay to do that it's okay to celebrate that with with people because that album's been with people you know for 25 years for most of their lives you know and uh, and we love doing that and the next year is the 25th anniversary of 3P Suite which has got in a room Good enough. And if you're thinking of me, etc., etc. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the plan for next year. So luckily, again, this year we didn't have many gigs. We had a few festivals and whatnot, uh, which have obviously been pulled. But we didn't. We it was going to be a pretty fallow year for us anyway. So we're not missing out on much gig income from this summer. I mean, it was going to be bits to tick 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 us over, but that was it. So next year, fingers crossed that everything's going to be okay. Um, then we've got the 25th anniversary of Free Piece Week coming out, which is um, again something great to look forward to. You know, we, we, we that that that's a really interesting album to play because it's quite long. I think it's 14 tracks um, and very different, very very different sound on that album. 
So, um, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to doing that, you know. Where can we find you online, Matthew? Uh, Facebook is uh, Dodgy UK, and that's the same with Twitter as well. Um, and there's dodgyology.com, which was our website, which we haven't updated for, <laughs> for a while. But you can go through, get on there and get on the shop, and you'll be able to find the, the last the last few records that we made. One was called Stand Up Right in a Cool Place, uh, which got remarkable reviews actually in all the broadsheets and whatnot and uh and then one from about three years ago called what are we fighting for which was uh, a great album as well so so i don't know there might be another dodgy album in the pipeline there may well be you know i'm not willing to have but it's certainly we're certainly not together recording at the moment just because of everything that's been going on you know well hopefully we'll hear from see you and hear more of your stuff soon then matthew all right chris well thank you good to talk to you man thank you so much uh, it's been a pleasure to speak to you massive thank you to matthew again that was an absolutely brilliant chat i hope you're really enjoying the podcast so far it's been really fun making it i would really appreciate it if you could pop onto your podcast provider and give us a rating and a review. It really helps climb the ladder and and uh, get into more ears, so to speak. Also, if you want to join in the social media chat, uh, there is a Instagram page, a Facebook page, and a Twitter handle. Just search for Back to Britpop. So get involved. See you on the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs>